It is the stereotypical, extraordinary French moustache that this guy has. Oh, fabulous. Welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast on Second World War, Prisoner War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. So today we've got Air Chief Marshal Sir Basil Edward Embry, GCB, KBE, DSO and three bars, DFC and AFC. It's the most impressive (laughs) gallantry awards I've seen. I mean, at the time of the escape, he was just a wing commander, or just a wing commander. I mean, he'd done a lot. He was 38 this particular time, and this is a 1940 escape, so quite early in the war. Very early in the war. Very early in the war. I think it's worthy, the amount of qualifications that Basil had, we've got to go in just very briefly, and there is so much on this chap that we could talk about. It's unbelievable. So trying to get this down to to something very brief is not doing him disservice, but there Mm. is just, there's reams of information on this chap so born in Gloucester uh, in February 1902 he joined the RAF age 19 as an acting pilot officer and was sent within the first couple of years off to Iraq which was all a bit punchy down there at the time Uh, he served under Arthur Harris actually of course he later became Bomber Harris okay uh, and that's fairly relevant later in the war because Mm -hmm. he does pick up some some action within Bomber Command so he was very enthusiastic very professional and he fast-tracked through the promotions quite quickly to the point where actually he won the Air Force Cross in 1926 okay. and when I found the citation it was for services in the air ambulance flying in Iraq right okay he became a flight lieutenant returned to England became an instructor at the French Central Flying School and then again was posted out to India but this time to command an Indian flying wing in the northwest frontier and he went out back out there in 1934 became a squadron leader in 1935 and he got involved in the second Momand campaign which Excellent. I had to go and look up. Not one I'm familiar with. No, it seems that in the 1930s, quite a lot going on with locals and tribesmen out there. This is where he gained a lot of his initial gallantry awards because he was mentioned in dispatches. And then in 1938, he was awarded the DSO for operations in Waziristan, which I also had to look up. <laughs> <laughs> but the citation read that the success of operations was entirely down to Embry's initiative. Okay. So that gave him the DSO. 1938. Came back to the UK in 1939 and he was put in command of 107 Squadron, flying multi-engine Bristol Blenheim light bombers. Now there's a bit of background more on this. So 107 Squadron had carried out the first bombing raid of the war. Okay. So 3rd of September, war's declared. Mm -hmm. The very next day, 4th of September, four and only four light bombers were sent out to bomb the German ports of Wilhelmshaven. Well that was disastrous, utterly disastrous. Three of those bombers didn't come back. But interestingly, relevant point for our discussion here, mm-hmm. one of those crew members, a navigator by the name of Sergeant George Booth, he was captured and became the very first prisoner of war of World War II. Ah. Just good. one day into the war. Unfortunate for him. Yeah, so that was a disastrous moment for 107 Squadron, which left them effectively without a leader. So Embry was put in within a couple of days, and he turns the whole squadron around. And it was a very interesting time, because largely, for most people, this is what they referred to as the phony war. There wasn't mm-hmm. a huge amount going on. But Basil was really busy. Mm-hmm. In 107 Squadron, they were going after U-boats. They were doing day photography they were doing day and night attacks they went on missions against the Scharnhorst and the Gneisenau battleships Mm -hmm. he also carried out further photo reconnaissance over Norway because obviously the Germans then invaded Norway so this this 107 squadron was fleeting around between France and and Norway and the low countries and everywhere you just Um, cannot avoid photo reconnaissance in Norway I can't involve yeah exactly (laughs) so uh so Embry was obviously incredibly busy with all of this managing the squadron but he he got awarded his first bar for his DSO at this time and it was for several actions the first one was he commanded his squadron into battle the Blenheim that he was in lost an engine got totally shot up he carried on into battle and then flew and led his squadron back home before crashing at his home base which was a a massive feat the Mm. second one was when he carried on into action and in the cold weather at high altitude he, he got frostbite suffering from frostbite and led the squadron in and came back out again so those two actions all before April 1940 earned him his first bar to his existing DSO and AFC so we're talking about an extremely brave and distinguished airman here 
Definitely. Yep. And you, we've got to face it, at the time, May, well, April going into May 1940, very, very busy time, yep. particularly near the Channel. So on the 10th of May, the Germans invade France, and Belgium, Luxembourg and the Netherlands. The Dunkirk evacuation starts on the 26th and on the 28th, Belgium surrenders. So the war is moving incredibly fast in this time. And actually, because of his subsequent actions, he did actually earn the second bar to his DSO during May, but it wouldn't actually be awarded until August. Right. But I just bring it up here now because... Mm. He was doing a huge amount, the pressure was on, and actually he was being told to take an operational rest. By now he's a massively experienced Mm 38-year-old pilot. He was up to wing commander at the time, and the RF were looking to try and protect some of these people. Fall of France had occurred, they're going to need as much experience as they can held back, and he was going to go on rest. So he was being put to command an RAF base, Uh, he was being raised up to a group captain rank, but he was going to fly this last mission on the 27th, which is where we come to on a fateful day. Yes, you're absolutely right. He was about to, he had been appointed to group captain. He agreed to do one last mission because the person who was due to take over wasn't in a position to take over just yet. So there was the lag in handover, essentially. I so get it. Yeah. Embry basically agreed to do one last mission as wing commander of 107 Squadron before he took over as group captain. A fateful decision. It seems like <laughs> yes. So yes, yeah, so we uh, looking at his report that he put in when he came back to the UK. He describes fairly honestly and brutally, dare mm. I say, what, what happened that day. So in his own words, he says, approximately 1,600 hours on the 27th of May, I received instructions that my squadron was to provide two sections of six aircraft each to attract German mechanised units in the Santa Maria district. My orders were that the attack was to be pressed home as it was of paramount importance to delay the German advance. Obviously, we're still trying to get people off the beaches of Dunkirk at the time. So this so. is literally the day after Dunkirk. It's the day after the Dunkirk evacuation started. Right, yes. So it's still ongoing. Yep. So it's got to hold up. And of course, we all know that the army and the navy were all going, where are the RAF? Well, this is where they were. This is yep. what he was trying to do. On arrival over the target area, approximately 6,000 feet, my formation was met by most accurate and what I judged to be moderately intense anti-aircraft fire. My own aircraft was hit four times and I was slightly wounded in the left leg while running up to the target to bomb. After releasing my bombs and shortly after turning away from the target, my aircraft was hit and severely damaged, the elevator becoming inoperative and the rudder only partially effective. I attempted to regain control by juggling with the engines, but I was unsuccessful and the aeroplane slowly lost control. Now, that is a relative feat. You can control a multi-engine aeroplane to a great extent by juggling engines, but you're now both hands on it because mm-hmm. obviously it's still a single pilot aeroplane to operate and you've got a navigator and a gunner but no one else to help you it would have been hard work to try and bring the aeroplane so hats off to giving it a go to start off with I immediately gave verbal instructions by intercommunication to the crew to uncover the escape hatches and prepare to abandon the aircraft I could get no answer however from the air gunner Corporal Lang I do not know whether he was killed in the air rendered unconscious by a wound or whether the intercommunication was damaged by the anti-aircraft fire. The aeroplane was now descending in an uncontrolled spiral and so I instructed my observer, Pilot Officer Whiting, to abandon aircraft. This he did successfully. After he had jumped, I left my seat and shouted to Corporal Lang, but he did not answer or move. I then reluctantly decided to abandon aircraft myself as I realised there would be insufficient time for me to go aft to assist the air gunner before the aircraft hit the ground. I left the aircraft without difficulty I intended to drop to within about a thousand feet of the ground before opening my parachute for fear of being shot during the descent, but I actually pulled the ripcord very much earlier. During the descent, I saw my aeroplane hit the ground and burst into flames. An hour later, the flames were still visible. Do we know what happened to Whiting and Lang? So Lang had been killed. Had he? He had, yeah. So there are two books on this escape, actually. Okay. One is written by a gentleman called Anthony Richardson, who's actually an adjutant in his squadron. Okay. And it's it's called Wingless Victory. The second one is Embry's Own Memoirs, which was written about five years later called Mission Completed. Okay. He actually doesn't go into that much detail. Compared to Richardson's book, he doesn't go into that much detail about the escape itself because it's his memoirs of his entire career. I see. So it's actually only about a chapter or two of his memoirs that actually feature his escape. But he does say in both his memoirs and in Richardson's book that it was obvious that Lang was dead when he left the plane. Whiting, to some extent we do know what happened. So they both landed quite nearby each other in the same field or within the same sort of field complex. They actually communicated and effectively Embry gave himself up. 
in order to give Whiting a chance to get away. Oh, wow. Okay. Which is how he was actually captured. He does actually say in his report, I signaled to him to close on me, but when we were about 75 yards apart, I heard a motorcycle approaching. We both lay down, but my position was pointed out by some French civilians who were in the vicinity. As I was covered by two Germans, one armed with a Tommy gun, I had to surrender, but pilot officer Whiting was not captured at that time. However, he was captured fairly soon afterwards, and so far as I'm aware, he spent the entirety of the war as a prisoner of war. I see. Okay. He was basically captured immediately because it was between him and Whiting. He had far less cover, so he gave himself up. He had been pointed out by the French civilians. It was obvious where he was, so he gave himself up so that Whiting would have a chance. And, of course, it's a high-intensity area for the Germans because they were advancing up to Dunkirk. Absolutely, And, yeah. you know, there's large presence. That's what they were there for. They were there to try and halt that advance, so it's fairly obvious they're going to get... Exactly, and, and they weren't far away from Dunkirk either, maybe 20, 25 miles or so yeah. behind the line. So, yeah, the this is hot area. He gave himself up, gave Whiting a chance. He's captured almost immediately by two German motorcyclists and taken back to their local base, essentially, and almost immediately is screamed at by a German captain. Now, Embry doesn't speak German. Okay. Or at least not much. Doesn't speak much French and has absolutely no idea what this guy is saying to him. Mm -hmm. And eventually the person who captures him basically tells him that the German captain is telling him to salute. Oh, okay. Mm. Which Embry's reply, which I quite like, is to essentially say, in my service, we do not salute junior officers. I'm a wing commander. That's the equivalent of a colonel. If he wants to salute me first, I will salute him back. Beautiful. To which the German captain responds by storming off in a huff. And makes no further demands of Embry. But it's rather a good put down, I thought. Especially given that he'd only been captured about 20 minutes at this point. That's good. And so he's almost immediately actually taken to the commander-in-chief of the advancing army. Mm -hmm. Now, he doesn't say this in his report, but he later says that he, after he returned to the UK, spoiler alert, he succeeded in his escape, he was shown a series of photographs of senior German army officers. Right. And he was taken to Heinz Guderian, who developed the theory of Blitzkrieg. Interesting. He is one of the most senior German army officers at this stage. Which is interesting, because Embry must have been one of the highest-ranked prisoners of war at that time as well. Yes, he would have been. Probably one of the highest-ranked, which is quite possibly why he was taken to the commander-in-chief of the army. And in actual fact, he is given a lift in the commander's car back to HQ, essentially, where he was then held overnight in the car with the commander-in-chief. And Guderian actually notices that he's cold and gives him his greatcoat. Wow. So having reached headquarters, and it's nighttime by this stage, he actually gets chatting to an officer who's called McKean. Now, that's not a very German name. No. And in actual fact, McKean is of Scottish descent. Okay. But it is German, but has relatives in Scotland and has spent time over in the UK. He speaks fluent English. Helpful at this Helpful, point. Helpful, yeah, absolutely. And so he's not a stool pigeon, he's just a guard. Right. He's not trying to get any information out of him, particularly over and above what guards usually try to get out of them. But they just get chatting because obviously he knows the UK, he knows people in the UK, he has relatives over there. And so they just get chatting. And McKean actually says to him, do you intend to escape? Now, rather than saying yes or no, Embry actually asks him, what would you do in my situation? Oh, clever. Yeah. And McKean's answer, and it was well worth asking, was, I wouldn't even think about it as one of the most highly guarded places in northern France right now. You'd be shot in seconds. Wow. Which is quite useful intelligence to have, given that Embry clearly was thinking about escape. Yeah. And probably didn't want to bullet it through his back as he was making that escape. So actually it was well worth getting into that conversation with the Germano Scott. So having spent the night in the local HQ, he was then taken to Cali where he was put into a gathering camp, essentially a central holding so, camp. So Calais had fallen by then to the Germans. Calais had fallen by then, and okay. they were actually using the local football stadium okay. as the holding pen. And while there, he gets chatting to the only two other Air Force officers that are there. Okay. Quite understandably, they advance through northern France. The vast majority of prisoners of war that they've taken at this time are from the army. Mm -hmm. So, as I say, there's only two or three RAF pilots that are held in this camp, so the blue uniform tends to stick out and amongst the khaki green yeah and so they they basically flock together and he gets chatting to a guy called tracy who is an irishman who came over and started flying for the raf right and he and tracy agree to to work together and try and get away as soon as possible mm -hmm. having you know gathered all these prisoners of war together in this football stadium at, at cali they're then starting to march them back towards germany march overnight they stay in the church 
the local priest goes around with cooked potatoes, which is basically the only food they actually get for about 36, 48 hours. What I was going to say, we must be nearly two days in by now mm, yeah. from when he was shot down. Yeah, so, so he's already spent the night at the chateau and then another night at this church. So yeah, we're into the second day since his capture on the 29th of May. And so having agreed with Tracy to make this breakaway, he then goes to the senior army officer. There's only three RAF officers. <laughs> the senior army officer is basically in charge of this group. So he goes to them and basically says, we intend to try and escape together. And his general plan is to basically try and make for the Somme. So he wants to cross the Somme and get back north up towards Allied lines. After they left the church, they were heading in a southeasterly direction. His general plan was to try and get away and make his way towards the Somme, cross the Somme, and then from there head towards wherever the British lines were at that stage now we know with the hindsight of history that dunkirk evacuation was taking place at this time but that yeah. didn't necessarily mean that he knew particularly that it was going on or where the fighting was taking place of at course. this time because of course the fighting was still in front of dunkirk so he was just trying to get past the line yes. wasn't necessarily making for dunkirk he was just trying to get back to the allied lines wherever the fighting was taking place and so that that was his general plan as the marching progressed he started to notice that they were heading easterly direction right rather than southeast and so he kind of felt, right, I'd need to start making a break fairly soon. And so he pre-warned Tracy that this was the plan, you know, they were changing direction, heading more east towards Germany, and that he was planning to make a break as soon as possible. Tracy understood this, and essentially they had arranged with the army officers around them to keep an eye on the guards so that when they were looking away, they would make their break. Right. Now, one thing that Embry had noticed was that... Whenever they walk through forested, wooded areas, the guards were more alert. Of course, because it gives ample cover to escape. Absolutely. And so he decided to actually make a break before they reached forested area. So it gave him less cover, but it meant that they were less attentive and they figured that he might have a better chance right. through that. So having organised with the army officers around him to keep an eye on the guards around so they're on trucks, they're on bicycles around to let him know when they weren't around. They're marching along on this road and he sees a signpost that says three kilometres to the village of Embry. It's literally a sign. Yes, it is literally a sign and he takes it as a good omen pre-warns Tracy that the next time the army officers tell them to go, they are going to go. Right. And so he did. So having jumped into a ditch, he basically just lies there, stock still, just waiting for a guard to call out, stop the column, drive back, a bullet to head in his direction, ricochet off the road towards him, all this sort of stuff. He's just waiting, lying there waiting. Equally, he's trying to keep an eye out for where Tracy's jumped, and he can't find him. Right. So while he's looking around, he notices in the field that there is a French woman milking a cow. Okay. Who is giving him hand signals to stay down. Helpful. Yeah. Compared to the last French people he met who hands him in. Yes, exactly. And so, essentially, she guides him across the field. Because this is still very live, you know, it's not just the column that's gone past, there's columns of troops going past, there's motorcycles, all this sort of stuff. So he's trying to make for cover on the other side of the field, and she directs him when to drop, when to get up, when to go, all this sort of stuff. And it takes three or four attempts to get across the field, all while she's milking the cow. Wow. Which is actually quite impressive, I think, because I'm not sure I could even milk a cow, let alone give directions on how to escape from an advancing German army. So, credit to her. So, having reached a bit of cover, he again tried to find Tracy, no sign of him. So, he decides to make his way to a nearby farm. As he approached the farm, the dogs started barking loudly. Now, farms don't tend to have small dogs kicking out. No, no, they don't. And this dog woke the owner. Upon knocking on the door and explaining his situation, the owner welcomed him in in open arms. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, in, in the book, he goes into far more detail. But In both books, they go into far more detail about this guy. His name was actually Paul, and he sported a spectacular moustache. Oh, fantastic. French onion Yeah, French onion Yeah, exactly. It is the stereotypical, extraordinary French moustache that this guy has. Oh, fabulous. And there is a photo of him in the books. This farmer, Paul, invites him in and his clothes cleaned and washed and dried and all this sort of stuff and he offers him a bed for the night he does warn him you know crawling with germans you know you need to find a hiding place on the farm they'll come and search the farm the next day but you're welcome to sleep here overnight and as paul took him next door to lead him to his bedroom the book actually states he took Embry by the arm and led him to the adjoining room carrying the lamp with him Embry climbed into bed while the old man tested the shutters and the lock of the window then he returned to the living room and came back with a single barrel 12 bore sporting gun he opened the breach and tapped 
the cartridge. Dommy bien, he said, winking enormously. La Boche. Bang, bang. <laughs> Dormi bien. <laughs> oh, wow. What a legend this what man is. What a hero this guy is. He's yeah. basically going to sit out all night with his single-barreled sporting shotgun, and if any Germans come near, he's going to give them what for. This gentleman, Paul, had actually fought in the First World War with the British, and so he was fiercely pro-British. They actually uh, talked quite a bit. And he reminisced about his time in the First World War fighting with the British. And that's why he was so... So helpful. So helpful and willing to take such an enormous risk. Because at least, you know, so far in the few days that Embry's been in captivity, he's had a little bit of ad luck, but seemingly a lot Mm. of very recent good luck. Yeah, absolutely. Having stayed the night, he actually ends up kind of staying on this farm for a couple of days on and off. So he's trying to cross the road that he actually escaped from. But it's so constantly busy that he actually cannot find a gap. Oh, I see. To yes. get across. He, so he tries every day and every night and he cannot get across. He basically worked out that the shift of traffic went from sort of infantry and tanks towards lorries and support systems. He realised that the actual front was moving further and further away from him. Yeah. So okay. he actually ends up changing his plans and rather than deciding to go directly across the road, he, start, he decides to effectively skirt around it. Now up to this point he hasn't been able to obtain civilian clothes. Paul's actually quite short. He's shorter than Embry so he's not able to just wear his clothes he has to go out and find some and during his scouting around he actually finds a coat on a scarecrow in a field now we've come across this before we have come across this and we thought it was incredible yeah somehow we've managed to come across this in both cowley and Embry's escapes wow that they managed to find clothing that fitted them on a scarecrow having stolen the coat from the scarecrow he decides to effectively travel as a belgian refugee beggar which i guess there equally would have been a lot of displaced people plenty of them yeah so he was more than capable of affiliating into them and sort of a, a ragged run down coat from a scarecrow wouldn't have particularly looked out of place with the sort of refugees that were on the road at this time. Mm. Uh, He manages to supplement this with a few clothes that Paul has been able to borrow from around the local town. Paul walks him through this local town, his, his village, which doesn't sound like a big deal. But given everyone knows everyone in a small local village in in northern France or in Scotland, UK, wherever, everyone knows everyone. So for him to walk brazenly through the centre of village with Embry next to him, chatting away to him, this would have stuck out like a sore thumb. Now, not to the Germans, who were obviously newly arrived there, but... At this stage, they didn't know where loyalties lay. Of course. Whether there was a collaborator around every corner or whether everyone was de Gaulleist or whatever. Of course. They didn't know where loyalties lay. So to walk Embry through the town in broad daylight, even in disguise, he wasn't in uniform, but even in disguise, this was a very brave thing for Mm. him to do. And he actually takes him on to the next town and leaves him there. Right. From there, he basically starts walking. Right. So at this stage, he's traveling at night. But he's not making a great deal of progress. And he actually hears a lady calling out for their dog. He decides to follow this, similar to before. Finding a friendly Finding a friendly Frenchman or or what have you. He follows the sound and he starts seeing these little lights. And he wonders what they are. So he goes a bit closer and he realises people smoking cigarettes outside. Oh God, very little lights then. Yes, very little light. Just tiny little lights, but it's pinprick. So he's following the light and he decides to scale the wall to try and get get in and start making conversation to them and he says he's about four feet away from them on the other side of a bush when he realizes that he can actually hear them and they're speaking german oh right so he starts retreating rapidly gets back over the wall and it's then that he realizes that he's actually left the food parcels the maps all the stuff that paul had given them to help him escape is on the other side of the wall. Not he is not over. about. He is not about to climb back over that wall to retrieve his parcel, his foods, etc. Oh my word! So he's in a bit of a predicament, and as I say, he's, he's traveling overnight, and the wound in his left leg is actually causing him a lot of pain. Actually, that's a good point. You know, I'd forgotten all about his mm. wound. I mean, it, it doesn't mention anywhere that he'd had any sort of form of medical treatment up to that point. No, he's not. And he only gets periodic medical treatment throughout his entire escape. And it is a constant problem the entire time. Wow. What he does tend to do 
is he tends to find because as i said there's so many refugees moving away from the front there's actually quite a lot of abandoned houses so he's actually quite adept at finding an abandoned house breaking in getting a bit of food finding a map that sort of thing so he does manage to recover some of his escape kit so over the next couple of days he does actually start to get quite near the Somme, which is of course his initial target by june the 4th which we now know was the final day of the dunkirk evacuation that's right yeah he is within a mile or two of the river basically okay but he's he's because he's traveling at night he essentially has to find cover before it gets light again and on this particular day he fails to find suitable cover and he ends up having to take refuge in a cornfield it gives you some cover but it's not particularly reliable the major issue from his perspective was a couple of hours after he'd taken refuge in the middle of this field turned out it was right in the middle of a live front Oh. And the Germans and the French are shelling each other. Right. So he's actually in grave danger from the artillery battle that's taking place all around him for several hours. At about three in the afternoon, he's basically convinced that he's been spotted by a sniper and that they've sent out a patrol to come and capture him because there's a motorcyclist heading directly for him. Right. Now, he is lying down this entire time in the cornfield, but why else would the motorcyclist be travelling directly for him? Mm. And by the time the motorcyclist is about 20 yards from him, he basically decides, I'm going to play dead here. I see, yeah. And, and so he does. And the bike passes about three yards past him and just keeps going. No. So More I, luck. Yeah, more luck. So basically a German has gone straight past them. I mean, he can't have missed them. But by virtue of having played dead for long enough, the German just ignored him and kept going and was heading back towards his own lines. Wow. Yeah. And bearing in mind he's travelled all night. Yeah. He hasn't slept. No. He's then been in the middle of a live shelling for most of the day mm-hmm. and he's still got it amongst him to go play dead and avoid capture right now. Exactly. Wow. So, of course, the front was live this whole time that he's been travelling. And so, despite having aimed for the Somme and actually crossed the Somme, the following day the front has now moved much further north now he does try to head north from there and he starts making his way towards the coast this time with the aim of trying to find a boat you know he's kind of worked out that the front's far too far away from it and i think we you had one of those in series one didn't you of someone who managed to get a boat from the shore yes taylor that's right yeah. it was so, it, so it is a it's a plausible yeah absolutely it was plausible at this back. stage of getting back so he starts making his way north he's essentially farm hopping overnight so he's trying to get himself to a hayloft and see what food he can find in the farms of course farms produce food therefore you've got a good chance of maybe finding eggs and so at one of these farms he actually does that he goes through the chicken coop finds a couple of eggs heads up into the hay loft above the farm and is about to settle down for his evening meal when the germans arrive with pretty much exactly the same plan as he had now just before they arrive he basically kicks away the ladder and hides up in the hayloft and doesn't move for two whole days no so the germans are just gathering at this farm they're essentially using it as a local hq before they move on and so he has two eggs to keep him going for this entirety and a bottle of wine. Yeah, I mean, of course you're going to liberate some wine when you're on the run, aren't you? So the entire time that he's in this hayloft, the Germans are basically using the barn below him as a gathering point, rest, recuperate, all this sort of stuff. And he just has, he has no choice but to sit out for two days. And eventually they leave. It wasn't until the night of the 6th to the 7th of June that he was actually able to move on once the Germans had cleared out from below him. And he he was getting quite frustrated with the slow progress he was making at night. He was using the stars to guide himself, but they were disappearing in the mist. Ah, yes. That was coming around about 1, 1 1.30 in the morning. Which you're going to get near the the coast. Exactly. Furthermore, because of the mist, it was getting dewy, the grass around him was getting wet, and that was actually making him wet feet, but it was also impacting upon his wound. Of course. And it was making his wound worse, so he therefore decided to start walking by day at this stage, thinking A, it'll be drier, warmer, but also more natural circadian rhythm Mm. that he'd be used to, as well as being able to potentially maybe find help he makes the decision to start walking by day which in and of itself is not necessarily a bad decision you know if he's having issues with his wound if he's making no progress i mean i think one of the nights he only made about three miles progress right so he's making very slow progress going at at night which obviously the front is moving quicker than he is yeah so it's not in and of itself a bad decision to shift to walking by day 
But unfortunately, this is potentially where his luck runs out because he almost immediately bumps into a German patrol hmm. who promptly arrest him because they don't believe that he's a Belgian refugee. And they essentially say, if we find out that you're a British serviceman, we will shoot you. And so they take him to a local chateau to hold him, where the local HQ and put him in the cellar to hold him until they can make some inquiries. Oh, my word. Yeah. And, of course, they because they're not going to know who the locals are or anything like that. So no. he could be held up for a few more days at least. Yeah. So exactly. he's got to keep the pretense up. He's got to keep the pretense up. But, of course, all they needed would be a German who spoke French better than him or potentially spoke Flemish. Oh, wow. Yes. And his cover would be blown straight away. So he basically makes the decision while he's sitting in the cellar to get out as soon as possible, make, make a break, whatever it took. He was going to be killed anyway if they found out that he was a British serviceman. So why not take the risk? Hmm. He goes to the door of the cell that he's being kept in and calls for water. Sentry comes back with water and by this point he'd retired to the furthermost corner of the room. Now he says, he returned after a few minutes and came across me with the water. As he handed it to me, I got up and I hit him on the point of the chin and he collapsed. I slipped out the room and took cover under manure heap in the farmyard until dark when I succeeded in slipping away without being seen. There's a little bit of understatement here and then he goes into a lot more detail in his book and Richardson also goes into a lot more detail. In this breakout, he actually takes the sentry's rifle and ends up killing with the butt of his rifle two more guards oh, wow. in his breakaway. I don't think we've had that so far in an episode, have we? No, it, it's not common. It is worth remembering that... Even prisoners of war, while protected by the Geneva Convention, this did not circumvent them or protect them from domestic law. Of course. Such as theft or murder. Yeah. After hiding in the manure and getting away to, to a nearby village, he basically, after one day, decides that daytime travel is not for him and returns to nighttime travel. Well, given recent experience, yes. <laughs> one would agree, yes. Yeah. And so he, he does say that the wound in his leg was now getting septic and sore. And upon hiding up in another hay barn, he actually pulls out his pocket knife and starts self-administering surgery on him on his leg and pulls out some pieces of perspex. Oh, from his plane. So it's actually the anti-aircraft, the flag that the plane had taken had caused Perspex to go into his leg. So he hadn't been shot. He hadn't taken the bullet. He'd actually taken in charge Perspex that he actually pulled out with the knife. Oh, lovely. By this stage, he's actually hiding out in a house and in the village. He essentially sees two people walking past this house and he is utterly convinced that they are British servicemen. They're essentially marching. Right. They're in civilian clothing but they're almost on drill. Right. He, he is totally convinced. So he slips out of the house to warn them that they look just like British oh, servicemen. Oh my God, this is a ballsy, yeah. ballsy move. And again, runs into patrol oh. and is again arrested. However, having realised that his cover as a Belgian is a little bit flawed by his limited French and complete lack of Flemish, Mm-hmm. And so he instantaneously thinks, I'm going to be Irish here. So when the Germans arrest him, he claims to be an Irish Republican. Clever. So upon being arrested, so he states, I was addressed in English, French and German, but said I only understood a little English and practically no French. The German then asked what language I did speak. And I replied, Gaelic. None of the Germans had any idea where Gaelic was spoken. So I drew a map of the United Kingdom and Ireland and told them that I was from the Republic of Ireland and that I'd escaped from the British police after having been arrested in connection with bomb outrages in London. Oh, clever man. So he's effectively claiming to be an Irish Republican terrorist who had been arrested in London for a series of bombing had broken away, gone over to the continent to get away and had been caught in the middle of this war that had nothing to do with him. I see. That's a new one. Mm. So, of course, they asked them to speak some Gaelic, which, being from Gloucester, was something of a challenge. However, having lived and served in India for five years, he spoke just enough Urdu to get by. Oh, And so he spoke a few words of Urdu to them and they became convinced he was speaking fluent Gaelic to them. Having become convinced that he was an Irish Republican terrorist... The Germans sent him on his way and gave him some food. Oh, because of course he wouldn't have had any papers at the time no. to prove anything. But And the Irish were neutral right. during the war. He says in his book they actually played it up a little bit and essentially became really offended that they called him British. All this, you know, he was really upset that they thought he was British. He hates the British every bit as much as the Germans hate the British. How dare you call me British? I'm, I'm Irish. And he, he, really get, he really plays into the role and gets really offended. 
defenders so eventually they, they become so convinced that they send them on his way so at this point he's now heading towards the coast to try and find a boat to be able to escape so he eventually reaches a small fishing village on the north coast of France and almost instantaneously upon arriving he realises that either all the boats have been secured or damaged by the Germans of course upon arrival for precisely this purpose now we did say earlier that Taylor managed to get away yes I think from my memory mm. it was literally a few days after the evacuation had ended whereas we're now probably talking at least a week yeah we're the on to the 12th 13th of June yes, so, so we're a week on from a week 10 days nearly yeah. on so in that time period the window of opportunity that existed for Taylor has long since moved on for Embry to be fair to him he does try and make his way along the coast to see if anywhere else is better but he quickly realises that it's sort of a consistency and so he decides to make his way towards Paris at this stage mm-hmm. and I think this is probably the turning point you know up to this point he's kind of been potting around in northern France but once he starts heading towards Paris he's now heading home a little bit yeah. you know he's still on the north coast of France and he's going to take a long route round as so many of them did and so upon making his way to Paris he decides to try and pass himself off as an American at the US Embassy okay now he's not the only person who tried this throughout the war And he wasn't the only one who failed spectacularly either. He does describe the incident in greater detail in the book, where he's almost like some sort of dreadful Wild West cowboy accent that he tries to pull off. And he he actually says that the the person who's interviewing them is struggling not to laugh during the interview because it's so bad. (laughs) That's not a good sign. No, not usually a good sign. And so (laughs) she, she basically stops him and says, right, who are you really? Because we can help you, but not as an American citizen. So he drops the pretense almost instantly, tells her the full story, explains that he's a British RAF pilot on the run. They basically say to him, well, there's someone who works in the embassy who's British, who's married to a Russian who works in the embassy. He's taken down to this lady's office, has a chat with her, and she essentially says, well, why don't you come back to my flat, my husband and I will help you. Oh, luck again has struck. Exactly, luck has struck. So having got back to the flat, he meets her husband, who is a white Russian, who's left Russia following the revolution, is now living and working in Paris. Now in the book, he does actually state that he strongly suspects that this lady and her husband are involved in intelligence, which possibly would tie in as to why she was in the position to help them. Yeah, I get you. In fact, he even goes so far as to say that he suspects that she was placed in the UN embassy for precisely the purpose of meeting people like him who were looking Uh, for help. Yes, yes. And so the husband basically says, you got to make your way to Bordeaux. Yeah. By this time, the Germans are advancing through France, but they certainly haven't made the south coast of France, you know, heading down towards the Bordeaux direction. And so he, he actually leaves their flat within 24 hours. So he asks the husband to help him try and get hold of a bicycle so he can make his way south. Now, the husband doesn't succeed in finding him a bicycle, but it's clear to him in just these 24 hours that he stayed in the flat that they are basically terrified. Right, uh, And so he makes the unilateral decision to leave before they kind of ask him to. So despite failing to get hold of a bike, he decides to head south anyway. Because I assume their protection of being workers at the embassy would not have covered them for hiding and escaped. Precisely, yeah. They would have been lined up against the wall and shot fairly summarily. Yeah. If they'd been fined. However, so he was sent back to the American consulate where there's a Colonel Shaw who seems to be coordinating British servicemen on the run in Paris at this stage. Probably unofficially. But that seems to be his role at this stage, based out of the American consulate. Shaw gives him 300 francs. Oh, this is the first time we've got a mention of money, actually. Yes. He's he's gone so far without needing any any funds. Yes, exactly. And he actually manages to beef this up to about 800 francs by going around the shops and basically begging for money. Right. Because he's still got his run-down scarecrow coat. Yeah. Uh, he looks like a Belgian refugee, even if he isn't actually one. Yeah. And so he was able to pass himself off as a beggar and managed to get himself up to 800 francs. Now, the other piece of advice that Shaw gives him is to head to the Salvation Army. Okay. Who are able to at least offer him shelter overnight. And when he's there, he gives these 800 francs to the man who works there and says, can you go and find me a bike that I can leave on in the morning? He comes back later with a bike and 720 francs change because he'd got himself a bike for 80 francs. Probably the best 80 francs he ever spent. Absolutely. Well, yes and no. (laughs) He leaves 5am the next morning, almost the second the curfew lifts, travels 220 kilometres in the first day. 
Oh, wow. Which is a fair old effort. With a wounded leg still. With a wounded leg. But this does give you an idea of how effective a bike could actually be in an escape. Of course. He's done most of this on foot, so he's walking by night, travelling anywhere between 3 and 20 miles overnight. You're making decent progress, but you're not making very fast progress. Equally a train, you've got constant paper checks, and if, as in Embry's case, he never made it to the camp, so he never really had access to the escape committee system that would exist later on in the war, whereby they were able to make forgeries for them to help them get out. He never had access to that, so he wasn't really, even with the money, he wasn't able really to travel by train at this stage. And so he's making his way south by bike. However, he does come across a sort of roadblock paper check, which is so busy that he essentially waits until there's a effectively a scrum forming between the two guards on this bridge and just pushes his way through the middle. Right. So he's covered either side by the sheer volume of number people. of people yeah. that he just goes through the middle and wheels his bike across and acts as if his papers have been checked. Wow, brilliant. Brazens it out, basically. So having got through this paper check... He continues south by bike. Towards nightfall, so he's thinking of stopping, he he approaches this village. And as he's about to cycle through the village, this cafe full of people starts shouting at him. But he doesn't really pick up what they're trying to say. He knows garbled messages of 10, 15, 20 people just shouting in French to him. Now, he does speak some French, but not enough to really pick out individual messages here. So he cycles on through the village and comes to a screeching halt as he turns it a corner because he finds himself in the middle of a hand-to-hand combat street battle between French and German oh. forces. Right. The remnants of a French force anyway. And he pedals madly back towards the cafe where he's able to stop and actually have a conversation with them. And they explain to him, well, we tried to shout at you. Yeah. So he, he ends up actually staying the evening at this cafe. But while there, a German soldier comes in and starts demanding papers. However, he just basically claims to be a Spaniard, has no papers. He's close enough to the Spanish border to pass himself off as a Spaniard visiting France. So he has no French papers to show. Yeah, of course. And again, the German just seems to accept this is fine and just moves on. So as he's moving south and heading towards the French border, by this point we're now at the stage whereby the French armistice has been signed Uh, on the 22nd of June. So we're now at June the 24th. And so there's effectively large numbers of French troops milling around, blocking the roads, themselves moving south to try and get away from the occupying forces. forces. So the French troops that he bumps into offer him help, give him food, give him a little bit of medical treatment. And in actual fact, they offer him a a ride in the motor car to take him back to their base to receive some help. In the book, he actually talks a little bit more about this because he couldn't help but reflect on the fact that the last time he'd been in a motor car was when he was actually being taken into captivity, when he was in the back of the car with Guderian and was given the greatcoat by this general. Whereas this time, they're actually helping him move south away from the Germans, trying to get him towards the Spanish border. Having got to the French base... He actually ends up meeting the general in charge there. Now, bear in mind that following the armistice, technically, there was no French army at this stage. Yeah. Obviously, there was still men milling around in uniform. The general's authority technically didn't exist, but of course, they still respected him as the general. Mm. Nonetheless, he was still in the position to offer Embry a pass to travel free on all French railways and papers to identify him, which is why he was able to start travelling by train. Ah, useful, yes. Which he was quite delighted about, because by this point, he was getting sores on his backside from having cycled so far through France. Of course. Yeah. So having been told that he should avoid Bordeaux because the German presence there was so extensive, he ends up going to Toulouse instead and was given a car to take him as far as Brive and then from there he proceeded by train to Toulouse. Now on the train he actually meets a Lance Bombardier bird who was also an escape prisoner and they actually end up escaping, or the rest of their escape they do together. Okay, yeah. So having reached Toulouse, he learns almost immediately that there was a ship leaving Marseille the following day that was going to the UK. Right. So he is essentially desperate to get to Marseille, to get on the ship he can get back. Calls up the local aerodrome of the French Air Force and says to them, I need to get to Marseille for the ship, can you get me there? And the person on the other end of the phone says, yep, no problem, we can offer you either a car or a plane to get you there, get yourself here for 8.30 tomorrow morning. Wow. He turns up at 8.15, the officer in charge says, junior officer, I promise you that, I can't commit to that, I'll see what I can do. Mm. Which, to be fair to the officer in command, he can't be beholden to a promise made by a junior officer. Yeah. But nonetheless, 
this is a bit of a setback, having been expected to be flown to Marseille so that he can make his escape. He's then in the hands of a senior Air Force officer. Who you hope would have recognised his rank as well, although he probably had no way of proving it, having ditched his uniform and currently wearing a scarecrow outfit. Exactly, and he'd actually given his dog tags to Paul. Ah, as a memento. right at the start. Yeah, right at the start. So the the senior French officer promised to do as much as he possibly could to help. This is at 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning. He waits till 1 in the afternoon and basically turns around and said, yeah, there's nothing I can do. Oh. So he's wasted four or five hours of the day. At which point, Embry then goes to the army, tells them their tale, and they instantly give him a car to get him south. And he arrives in Marseille the following morning and watches the ship sail off. Oh, no. So now he is down in the south of France, relatively near the Spanish border. Certainly Marseille was a mixing pot of a lot of escapers, evaders, all trying to get out of France. It was a central collecting hub. So he's in a good place to be in Mm. as he's making his way south. So he, he starts making his way down the coast to make his way towards the Pyrenees. As he gets further and further along, he keeps hearing that the Italians are going to come along and take control of this port or that port, etc. So he basically makes his way to Perpignan. So he says that he made his way to Perpignan with a view to hiring or stealing a boat to take me to Gibraltar. And after some delays and difficulties, I arrived in Gibraltar. Now, this is a masterclass in understatement. Well, I was going to say, that's just missed, well, probably a third of the distance he had to travel, wasn't it? it? Indeed. So what actually happened was from Perpignan, he makes his way further south and travels to a place called Le Pertus, which is a village on the French-Spanish border. There, he managed to make contact with the British consul in Barcelona who made regular cross-border trips, a gentleman called Mr Dickens, who arranged for him to stay in this village. He ended up actually staying at the police station there, and he ended up staying there several weeks. After a couple of weeks, word eventually reached the British officials that there was a price on on Embry's head for the killing of the guards of the guards in his previous getaway and so they were effectively forced to take action and they ended up smuggling him across the border in the boot of a diplomatic car wow and from there he makes his way south to Barcelona then to Madrid and then heads down to Gibraltar travelling through Spain with help of the British consulate officials now it's quite interesting because he got back so relatively early in the war I mean he got he reached the UK on the 12th of August it's clear from his report how much value they put by what Embry has to say and there's a reason for this because as of the 2nd of August which is the day he actually reached the UK he was interviewed on the 12th but as of the 2nd of August he was the single most highly ranked officer to have returned from capture ah well we thought he might have been the most senior to be captured yeah to return definitely at this stage only about 10 other officers had reached the uk having escaped of them there were second lieutenants lieutenants and captains wing commander is the equivalent of lieutenant colonel as we said before which is at least two ranks higher than any of the other officers that had reached the uk having escaped by this stage so they really put a lot of value by what Embry has to say and really go into a lot of detail. He's clearly highly respected, not just for his escape, but obviously the various awards. Oh, completely. I mean, he, he was incredibly well decorated and qualified indeed. even before the war started. But more than that, not only was he the most senior officer of all the services to return, but he was actually the first and only RAF officer at this stage to have escaped. Interesting. That is interesting. And my word, I mean, what an adventure he had had. Normally, that would have been enough for anybody. I mean, we're only, Mm. what, not even a year into the war, actually, by the time you were 11 months into the war. Mm -hmm. And he's already had an incredible eventful time. But it doesn't end there. Right, okay. Because, as you know, I quite like looking into what happened to people afterwards. Well, obviously, there was still the best part of five years of war left, and he didn't stop. Um, Of course he didn't. Of course he didn't. I mean, (laughs) he was still suffering from the injury to his leg, so he took two months of sick leave, effectively, before he took that position of group captain. He did that for just three weeks. Okay. Because that required him to stay behind a desk. (laughs) So he decided that he actually wanted to get back into some form of operational flying again, so he then stepped back down to become a wing commander in order to command a night fighting wing of the Royal Air Force. But that unit was disbanded at the end of 1940, so he went back to being a group captain again. But he did keep his hand in operationally, flying whenever he could, by flying radar-equipped night fighters. Okay. 
Now, there was obviously quite a lot going on with the Blitz, so there was a little bit of work for him on that. However, he soon got seconded, because of his experience, he got seconded to the Desert Air Force as an advisor, and he did see some action in North Africa through late 1941, before he eventually came back to the UK in March of 1942. At that point, I think if you remember, we referred back to the time he had served under Arthur Harris, who mm. became Bomber Harris. Well, at this point, he was made the commander of Number 2 Group of Bomber Command. Okay. in 1942 and even though he was then an air vice marshal he continued to fly operations but he didn't fly as an air vice marshal he would fly under the name wing commander smith right nice uh, and generic nice and generic so he did fly there were some that were fairly notable trips that he did which brought yet more awards two group that under his command but actually became one of the most effective commands of all the allied air okay. forces both the serviceability and the precision that they carried out their bombing so M personally took part in the low-level mosquito raid on Aarhus. Yeah, the, in Denmark. The university in Denmark, which was, yes, the Gestapo headquarters for the whole of the Jutland area. What he learnt on that, he then applied in his involvement with the operational planning of the attacks on the Gestapo HQs in Copenhagen and Odense as well, okay. uh, which carried out in 1945, which actually those actions led to him being awarded the DFC for the attacks on the Gestapo headquarters. Excellent. And then finally, at the end of the war, with all of his efforts of flying operationally, despite there being that bounty, which was 70,000 Reichsmarks, okay. the bounty on his head, had he been shot down, that earned him the third bar to his DSO. That's impressive. That is incredibly impressive. But his service didn't end there. Okay. So he carried on from there and he became Commander-in-Chief of Fighter Command from 1949 to 1953. Okay. And then followed on that with the Commander-in-Chief of the Allied Air Forces Central Europe because obviously everything was changing mm. in Europe as part of the Cold War. But he was to leave the RAF a little bit early. He was fairly outspoken with criticism of... NATO, how it was set up, the chain of command. So he left the RAF not on the under best terms, cloud. under a slight cloud. So all this guy who had done all this fighting and all of this amazing stuff headed off to Australia in 1956 to become a sheep farmer. Okay. Now his wife was Australian, so there was obviously a link to go down okay. there. Uh, and he actually ended up, by the late 1960s, he set up in a little place called Albany, which is hours and hours and hours south of Perth on the on the western coast. And the only reason I know it is because my sister lived there until <laughs> just, just recently. Recently, and I know Albany fairly well. It's a very nice part of the world. Okay. So uh, he was there. He did retain his links back, though, to his RAF days because he became the president of the RAF Escaping Society. Mm -hmm. But he worked himself quite hard. He became quite ill uh, in about 1975, and I think he passed away in 1977 down in Australia. Okay. So quite an amazing man. Mm. But I did find one quote about him, which I think, I okay. think we can end on quite well, which describes him. Because whilst we are, obviously can take from this that he was incredibly brave and he did an awful lot of things, there was nothing actually about him as a person. Mm. So I found a quote from Air Marshal Peter Wickham, who had served with him on Bomber Command in 2 Group, and he said this about Embry. He was both charming and rude, prejudiced and broad-minded, pliable and obstinate, dedicated and human. Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.